I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Thank you so much, Bill and Scott, for joining us on this Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment webinar. We like to call ourselves a CETI. We are a new organisation. We've only been running for a couple of months now. We have sort of two key purposes. The first is to try and bring together experts working in academe, in business, in government, in civil society groups who work on and in trade and investment issues to come together more regularly. I think unlike the US, we tend to have far stronger silos when it comes to these different groups, whether it's government or business or think tanks or civil society groups. Whereas in the US, I think there's far greater cross-fertilisation. So a CD tries to create a forum and a space for people working on and in trade and investment to get together more often to discuss issues of national importance for Australia. And then our second purpose and what's related to this webinar is we try and take the information from that discussion and engagement and turn it into information that the general public can understand. So as you say at the beginning of your podcast, you try and explain trade in terms that everyone can understand. So I invited you to this webinar and I'm so grateful for you making the time. Thank you so much to get your trade secrets on how you make trade understandable for everyone, for people that aren't trade geeks. And I think the reason why it's so important is because trade is so important to people. And I think there's quite a lot of taking for granted the benefits of trade and how it contributes to people's everyday lives. So thank you so much. Um, I, I think Anyone who is online or anyone who is watching this recording will know Bill and Scott. They are the amazing trade guys from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Together, you both bring amazing experience from the public sector as well as from the private sector. I think it's quite fair enough to say you are both rock stars of the trade world. So we are incredibly grateful to have you here. So Scott and Bill, welcome. But could I start with asking... How did the Trade Guys begin and what was the rationale for the Trade Guys and how did you start off this, this journey of trying to make trade understandable to, to people in general? Don't have enough hair to be rock stars. Neither one of us. <laughs> I just want that for the record. Scott? Yes. Yes. But I did get good advice from Keith Richards about taking care of myself over the years. So <laughs> hey, he's still alive. thank you for in, inviting us. He, he is. He, he's he, Probably going to outlive his progeny at this point, but that's another story. Prue, we thank you for inviting us on. We're delighted to talk to other people who are warriors for the good cause of international trade. We got into this thing by accident. Bill and I were both sort of laboring in the vineyards. We were trade professionals you know, at a public policy research institute, so we were making our ideas available to the public. But what really triggered us and really got us to the point thinking about how to communicate in language the voters spoke in was the, the candidacy of Donald Trump. You had a politician who was drawing a very large following, this is called 2016, 2015, before elections. And he was making uh, points about international trade that were very different than voters had heard about before. He was describing it in a different way. He was attributing problems to it 
that uh, had not been part of the public discourse. And because he was just this massive shiny object that the media couldn't resist, all of a sudden, candidate Donald Trump's comments wound up on the front page of a newspaper. Had he, he gave a speech in Pittsburgh on the subject of using national tariffs based on national security. This is the famous case where he actually promised to do and then did it when in office on steel and aluminum, the famous 232 tariffs. But we realized that talking about 232 got us nowhere because the voters didn't really understand it. What they were responding to was this message. So Bill and I worked with our external relations vice president, Andrew Schwartz, about how, how can we do this? Podcasting was just coming to into its own about that time. We like the idea of a podcast because it's the one thing that CSIS produces that you can do something else while you're consuming it. And if you're going to come to an event or read a report, well, you've got to just do that. It takes focus to do that. But a podcast, you can listen while you're commuting or working out, or as one of Bill's friends always pointed out, he used it to fall asleep at night. So we're grateful for listeners, however they come. But... <laughs> But we just we just decided, look, the problem is we, we have too much jargon in, in trade speak, and we look for a way to cut through that. So both Bill and I, and Andrew, is who hosts our weekly podcast, he's a great host, but his main job is to keep us honest, make sure we don't talk in acronyms and nicknames and code that are not familiar to the the normal listener, somebody who's interested in public policy but doesn't spend their every waking hour in trade. So that's how we got going. And I think to this day, we are still the most, have the most subscriptions and the highest rating of any CSIS podcast. So people seem to like what we're doing. The point about plain language is important. And I think it's important for what you're trying to do too. Trade in particular is, is a language of acronyms. In the United States, we have TAA, we have TPA, we have numbers. We have 301, we have 201, we have 232. Then there's the WTO. Look at it internationally. There's RCEP, there's IPEF, there's the TTC. We had TPP for a while. You know, you can have an entire conversation consistent of nothing but letters, no words. And uh, that doesn't get you very far when you're trying to explain things. As, as, as Scott said, you say, well, you know, what about these, uh, these 232 tariffs? And people have no clue what that means. Being able to put it into language, I tell people that podcast is aimed at sixth graders. And I think that's probably the appropriate place to aim it. And what's great about Andrew is, you know, in his own way, he's sort of a sixth grader. And so he he forces <laughs> us to, you know, say, what does that mean? You know, and he forces us yes. to use language that, that everybody can understand. No, he's very good at keeping you honest. That's true. I know a lot of his questions are about, so how does that relate to exactly. someone going about their day-to-day? He's really good at grounding you. Just on language and not necessarily engaging with the common person, but the whole issue of messaging on trade. I know having worked in a political office before, the message always has to be or seems to be, you can't talk about imports for yes. politicians. They can't talk about imports. They can only talk about exports. And I know Donald Trump, a key issue for him was the trade balance and ensuring that there were the exports to China in particular increased in, in relation to the imports. In terms of your your podcast or in terms of giving, I guess, us advice in terms of how you balance that messaging, do you have any points on, on how you talk about imports as being equally important to exports? Sure. Look, I think the first thing that any of us have to do is be a happy warrior. And the happiness from trade comes from the fact that it benefits everyone. An international exchange only happens when both parties 
find it a better option than not doing it. So if you have a free exchange, there has to be mutual benefit. So every transaction in the world of trade is a win-win transaction. So that's the first piece of happiness. The second is many of the ways that trade raises the living standards of all of our voters, of all consumers, is imports. Look at your grocery store fruits and vegetables sections. I'm old enough to remember having strawberries in season, which I loved strawberries. My birthday was in May. That was associated with it because we only got strawberries for about a month in season in central Ohio. Now it's every day of the week. This gorgeous display of fresh fruits and vegetables. Where does it come from? The answer is everywhere. Or when you, when you look at your, your mobile device, where, where was it made? Well, the answer is everywhere. So we, we first make the point, you've got to start to talk about the benefits. I'm an old soap salesman by trade. I worked for many years for the Procter & Gamble company. Had got great training in operations. But when we ran an ad for laundry detergent or anything, you start with the benefit. You start what's in it for the consumer. And what's in it for the consumer is a better standard of living. You have more things that are available to you in the market. You have more services you can reach. There are more people you can sell to, sure. So both sides of the, of the balance are important. The other point about imports uh, that I would make, Prue, and I know it's true in the United States. It's true in most markets. You'll tell me if it's true in Australia. But there has been a dramatic rise in imports of intermediate goods, not finished goods. So it's things to make other things. So the United States imports roughly a trillion dollars a year of intermediates. That's materials, partially assembled equipment, whatever it might be, that is used to make the finished products in the United States. That's the most efficient way to do it, whether it's an automobile component, a brake pad or brake assembly, whatever it might be. Those intermediate goods tout as imports, sure, but they wind up making the domestic manufacturing operation much more efficient. And so ultimately the product is available at a better price than it would be otherwise. So those imports do a great job of not just lowering the consumer price, but making those domestic manufacturers more competitive. So imports are, I want the whole, I want the whole smorgasbord. I don't just want to export, okay? I'm glad to sell people American products. I think selling America is a great thing to do. I think buying America is great, but I, I want to buy from the world. I want the best the world has to offer. That's the major benefit of trade. One of the problems in explaining that though is exactly the intermediate products you refer to, because from the average citizen's point of view, they're invisible. It's an interesting exercise to ask people what your country imports and what your country exports. Usually what the country imports is kind of, they sort of know that because, you know, it's what Scott said. For us, it's bananas because we don't grow bananas in the United States. For us, it's coffee. because Unless you're in Hawaii, we don't grow coffee in the United States. Agricultural products that are obviously not viable in, in the country. Those are obvious imports. You can somebody tell somebody, say, take off your jacket, look at the label on the back, because uh, in the United States, it will tell you where it came from. And if, if it doesn't tell you, it means it came from the United States. But if it came from somewhere else, it says made in wherever. Sometimes it will say made in China from or made in Malaysia from silk in China. Look at my ties, for example. So the end products are visible. But if you ask people, what do we import? Nobody's going to say we import brake pads or we import electric wire harnesses or we import, you know, the chips that go into toasters. Believe it or not, toasters have chips these days. So there's kind of an education function there. At the same time, the harder question is telling people, well, what do you export? And I've discovered people don't have as anywhere as clear an idea of what they export. If you talk to an American about what do you export, probably they'll say, well, airplanes, because that's fairly visible. They won't say 
electric wire harnesses. They won't say, which are in airplanes, they won't say aircraft engines. They won't say seats or anything else that's inside the plane. They'll just say the plane. You know, if they're interested in sort of international stuff at all, for us, they might say movies because we export a lot of movies. But after that, you know, they kind of stop because they don't think about the intermediate goods. And one of the problems I had when I was lobbying on this stuff, representing large companies, every time an issue came up, we'd have a meeting that said, how can we get the public excited about these issues? And someone would say, well, you have to go out to the people that make things and tell them that the things they're making are being exported. And what we learned is sometimes the people that make things don't have any idea that they're being exported. If you're making, for example, using the wire harnesses again, if you're making electric wire harnesses, the average worker who makes this stuff in Connecticut says, well, I'm selling into Boeing. You know, and he's right. He's selling into Boeing. He's not thinking about the fact that most of Boeing's planes are exported. So making that connection has turned out to be complicated. People who make intermediate goods, they only know the next step in the process, the destination. They don't know the ultimate destination. So their sense of how much our economy depends on trade is minimized. And that's something that we have to work on. The other problem that we ran into in the in the lobbying area was if you were trying to mobilize people to not only to educate them, but say, now, okay, now that you know, uh, and do you care, are you willing to do something about it? And what we learned was most people are busy. You know, we used to tell company executives, don't just send the CEO to Washington to talk to his congressman. What really makes a difference is, you know, if you've got 3,000 workers in the plant and their congressman comes and visits, they all stand up and say, you've got to vote for this, whatever it is. That makes a difference because that's a lot of voters. And what happens is CEO goes back and tries to get his plant managers to invite their local politicians to come visit or to write letters or something. And the manager will say, you know, that's like number 14 on my list. I've got a lot of other production problems and, and supply problems I've got to deal with this week. I don't have time for that. You want me to invite our congressman to come visit? You want me to take people off the line to work, you know, to have lunch with him? You know, that's going to cut into our day. We don't have time for that. So there's all these practical things that have to be dealt with when you're trying to launch an education campaign. No, very good points. In terms of Australia, I think everyone thinks we only export iron ore, which is about 33% of our exports in 2021. But I think that, as you say, they don't recognise the other things that get imported and exported. And for me, I think intellectual property is a key one that people just simply don't recognise as a traded good at all. And we import so many things in terms of streaming services and architectural design, just so much that comes in that intangible form of intellectual property. Um, but also Australia, one of our biggest imports pre-COVID was travel services. So people don't see their overseas holiday as, as trade at all. So I think you're absolutely right in terms of helping people understand what it is that we're trading, we're importing and exporting. And you're, yeah, yeah, you're spot on. To the extent you can base it in their day-to-day -day experience. I mean, you make great points about services. So if you were a tourist or if you hosted an exchange student, that's trade in services. Travel services is a major services export for Australia. In the United States, education, higher education is a major services export, but it doesn't look like an export. It doesn't quack like an export. A foreign student who comes in and takes classes at a California university doesn't look or feel like an, like an export, but that, that is exactly what it is. And, and those kinds of things, they're, and they're governed by the same sets of transactions and the same mutual benefit that me going to the corner coffee shop 
and ordering my morning caffeine hit is. I'm, I'm better off because I, I didn't make it myself and the local barista knows my order and the barista is better off because I patronized her shop and we both win. Otherwise, I don't show up. So all these things are rooted in a mutually beneficial transaction. And part of the part of what the barista sold me came from some nation near the equator with mountains, because that's where all coffee's grown. But a lot went into getting that coffee here and getting it processed and roasted. Then the barista made the drink, which is, a, which is again, part of the service that's being consumed. So it's hard, but to, if, to the extent you can, you can nail it to, to everyday experience, people can start to see how this works. Our Boeing friends say that an airplane is nothing more or less than 200,000 parts flying in close formation. Yes, hopefully very, very close formation that sticks together the whole time and doesn't decide it wants to be individual parts. Yes. <laughs> you have to revise it upward. Apparently now it's 3 million parts. <laughs> That's frightening. I know it's frightening, <laughs> but it, it's, it's the same principle. I mean, you've made some incredibly good points. And I think one thing that I wanted to touch on was why is trade important? Why should people be interested? And I think you've touched on that already. It's just this interconnectedness of people internationally in terms of providing goods and services and intellectual property that makes up people's daily lives and contributes and and makes people's lives so much richer in so many ways. Well, here's three things that it almost always does. All right. The first thing it does is it raises living standards. Anywhere there's an open market, Living standards go up because of that mutually beneficial exchange. The second thing is open markets consistently grow faster. They have higher rates of macroeconomic growth than closed markets. So when you open your economy to trade, you get faster growth, which benefits almost everyone in the economy. Even if you have problems, politicians would rather solve a problem in a growing economy than in a declining one. Okay. And the third thing that it does is it, it is a furnace for innovation. One of the things about that's happened in the last 25 years is we've had this radical reduction in the barriers to the movement of goods, people, ideas, and culture. And the intersection of the people and ideas, in fact, the wonderful English phrase, the meeting of the minds, is what happens when you explore a new market, when you engage in in a commercial transaction with somebody you hadn't met before, those kinds of things. And our societies are massively dependent on innovation, and we have no idea how to get it. Well, one of the ways you get it is you trade, because it is in that interchange with people who are not like you and have different ways of solving the problem, they have different problems to solve, is where a lot of commercial innovation actually materializes. So growth, higher living standards, and innovation. I emphasize the growth because, well, I mean, in the United States, we're a mature, slow growth economy. And Scott's much better with numbers than I am. But the one I remember is currently, I think, you know, 96% of the world's consumers are outside the United States. So if you're a company that wants to grow, you're not going to grow real fast inside the United States. You know, our, our birth rate is now, as of last year, I think, below the fertility rate. We're, we're not Japan yet or Germany, but we're heading in that direction. If you want to grow your company, uh, what that means is export. And if you're going to export, then you're, you know, you're going to be involved internationally. There have been a number of studies done, basically a threshold one done oh, years ago, more than 20 years ago, by the, our National Association of Manufacturers that demonstrated that companies that engage in international transactions, importing or exporting, it didn't make any difference, did better. They paid higher wages. 
They grew faster, they grew more, and they had less churn in their workforce. What struck me as interesting, it wasn't just about exporting, it was about trading and getting involved internationally, because then you get the innovation, meeting of the minds element that Scott talked about. And for mature economies or developed economies, I think this is absolutely essential. So for me, I absolutely agree. It's a no-brainer that trade benefits. There's huge benefits to come out of trade. But a lot of the rhetoric is about, as I said, exports are good, imports are bad. We shouldn't be buying from other countries. Trade has environmental impacts that aren't necessarily good. So there tends to be quite a lot of messaging about the negative side of, of trade. So how do we turn it into, I guess, a positive story that highlights the benefits, which in my view, far outweigh the negatives of trade. We absolutely have to watch for the negatives and particularly environmental impacts and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But so how do you how do you do it? How do you how do the trade guys do it? Well, usually my starting point is to remind people about neutral rules and the importance of neutral rules. Because yes, we don't want unfair trade. We, we had a conversation a week or two ago about slave labor, really sensitive subjects. Bill pointed out that forced labor has been banned in the United States since the McKinley Tariff Act of 1897. The ban was extended to all forced labor in 1930. So we have 90 years where of prohibitions on forced labor. Now, that's great. That's the way I think Americans want international trade to be conducted. But it's the underlying rules that are sort of agreed upon mutually, mutually enforced, and neutral that that make trade agreements as efficient as they can be while addressing the concerns like forced labor, like where ingredients come from, like the sustainability of products, those kinds of things. And the neutrality of the rule is, is for me, the vital part. There's a street out in front of my condominium here in North Carolina. It's a 35 mile an hour speed limit. It really doesn't matter whether you're driving a Ford or a Ferrari, the speed limit's still 35. And everyone needs to, that's what people obey. That's that's a neutral rule. And most of trade policy is governed by neutral rules that prevent discrimination, that protect traders from rules that change on a whim of the government. It's a great advance. And so I think that there should be more fair trade and less unfair trade. But it's those neutral rules that separates fair from unfair that a lot of a lot of diplomatic effort goes into. But it's vitally important to hold the system together. My comment was just going to be tell stories, tell stories of things that happened, particular cases that had interesting, positive outcomes, the sort of Ripley's Believe It or Not stories, for those of you that are my generation, are the good kind of stories. <laughs> I once was meeting with a group of people from the, the Chamber of Commerce of Eastern North Carolina. And as Scott probably knows, since he's a North Carolinian now, there's not a lot in Eastern North Carolina. But one of the comments I was making in, in Explaining why trade was important was to remind them that at that point, 50%, and now it's 60% in the United States, of the cut flowers sold here every day are imported. And our flowers come from the Netherlands, they come from Israel, they come from Colombia for the most part, not all of them. And I sort of explained, you know, 40 years earlier, that couldn't have happened. We didn't have the transportation infrastructure that would get them here. And now we, now we do, and people have seen the opportunities, thinking outside the box a little bit, and uh, have taken advantage of it. But what intrigued me was when I was done, after the thing was over, this, this guy walks up to me who's from the chamber there and said, you know that story about the flowers? That was nothing. 
Here in North Carolina, we got fishermen who go out and fish and catch flounder off the coast of North Carolina, and they sell them in the Tokyo fish market every day. There's a very big airport that used to be, I think, military and isn't anymore in that part of the country. And there's a plane that would come in every day. They'd load it up with fish. And 12 hours later, it would be in the Tokyo fish market. I mean, that's a story about globalization. It's also a story of not just about trade, but how thinking outside the box can create connections and opportunities that you would not normally think about. What fisherman thinks about sending his fish like 12,000 miles away and can get them there in real time? I mean, globalization enables a whole bunch of new things. And simply telling those stories gets people thinking about other things that they could do that would be in the same, you know, in the same category. I think that's that's tended to be a powerful way to do it over the years. Something that always attracted me, I often would look at something and try and find out where it was made. And you'd think about, well, what was the factory? Where was it made? Who made it? What did that person have for breakfast that morning? Always felt trade was a great, way to think about other people globally and connect internationally in ways that um, foreign affairs, which is often a bit fluffier, never could. Trade was always that much more concrete, a way to engage with people in other countries. Scott, I think you have a list. Well, which I'll be happy to to share with the audience. We've gone through a, a couple of them now. I call it six rules for talking about international trade. And uh, it was derived from a list I had when I was younger called Five Rules for Dating My Daughters, which were, you might, I might expect, uh, I was took my fatherhood duties seriously. Just, but, just uh, for the record. I also take trade seriously. I had sons and we had no rules. I just want to. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's right. No, it's, the, it's the daughter's dads that have all the rules, believe me. So, but in any case, I've been through a couple of them already. One is start with the benefits. Always, always have a story about how this is good. So many trade people will start with a complaint. Oh, those stupid Americans. Okay, or whichever trading partner is giving you trouble that day. And at least in political conversations and in capitals, that tends to be the way things are framed. If you can start by saying, you know, lives are better today because of trade. In fact, we reduced poverty to a greater extent since 1990 than ever before in human history. More people were lifted out of poverty, mostly because the world opened up to free exchange. And so there are lots of ways to start with a positive, even if you're delivering bad news. So start with the benefits. Second, if you can talk about it in terms of everyday experience, you have a chance of the voter, the listener, whoever it is you're talking to, reflects upon their own habits of exchange. We all transact commerce every day. The only difference between that and international trade is whether the other party's foreign or domestic. That's the only difference. It's all mutually beneficial. Third rule is about rules itself and the neutrality and mutual reinforcement of rules. Second, dispute settlement. If you settle rules that you've agreed on in advance and settle them by an established method, you'll promote freedom. Other ways tend to be destructive, but if you've got a trade dispute, help remind them why the rules are the way they are and how that promotes getting along and resolving them and getting back to this beneficial exchange versus the old ways of settling rules. I mean, we have a city called New York that was once New Amsterdam. The reason it's New York and not New Amsterdam was a fight over nutmeg. So any of your historians would like to look up the Treaty of Breda. The Dutch owned that part of what was before the United States, that part of what's now the United States. In fact, Henry Hudson, the famous British explorer, was on a Dutch ship and paid for by the Dutch West India Company. But the nutmeg fight turned into a shooting war, settled with some land transactions. We've got better ways now. That's the fourth issue. Fifth issue is if you're advocating trade, be careful around old issues. 
old issues are the ones that are hardest to deal with. It seems like trade policy gets stuck on things that are almost infinitesimally small or perhaps immaterial to the average voter. The U.S. sugar program being one of them. It's a rich country that has huge barriers to the importation of very basic commodity. Uh, but it's an old issue. It's one that's hard to impact. Many of the agriculture issues fall in that category of old issues. And to the extent you can avoid cynicism about it and you avoid the attributing ill motives, that's, that's where you have to be most careful in the conversations to presume people are doing what's not just in their interest, but what they think is right and finding solutions from there. So that's the fifth issue. The sixth issue is the future is going to be man- magnificent. The future will be better because of free exchange, because we have the meeting of the minds. We'll solve new problems. Frankly, you can see it in the way trade rules have been kept simple around commercial transactions over the internet. Okay, there was some foresight. We decided not to collect tariffs when nobody had any revenue. And in internet transactions, that holds today as as an international agreement. And it's contributed to the growth and the way we're able to exchange so efficiently over uh, telecommunications systems. So those are the rules. Who will have a copy of them? Uh, Anybody on the call who's interested, but uh, we'll also publish them uh, along with this recording uh, in the liner notes. Invaluable. Pearls of wisdom. Mostly acquired the hard way, so (laughs) much like the rules for my daughters. (laughs) And this is going to steer off a little bit from the topic. Recently in Australia, there's been quite a lot of commentary about national security and how we need to, how open markets aren't necessarily compatible with national security. And I think your discussion about the importance of the rules, I think we had an interesting article here by... um, someone from the strategic Australian Policy Strategic Institute that said basically the old ideas of open markets and trade rules, that's a thing of the past. It was all sort of dreaming that that would be the way to go. And now we've, we've really got to in, introduce greater industrial policy and take charge of our trade relationships to ensure that they meet national security objectives. So I guess it's so encouraging to hear you talking about the importance of trade rules and the benefits from open open markets because I think we're going through a period where that's really being challenged now discussions around friendshoring and in, in industrial policy in Australia where government sure. is increasingly intervening in markets to achieve strategic outcomes it's just really really encouraging to hear you continuing to talk about the importance of open markets because it's something that Australia's really been a great advocate for Yes. Many, you know, for the last 50 decades, really, the last five decades, I should say, 50 years. So it's something that we will absolutely continue to promote here at ACITI. Well, Bill has forgotten more about trade controls, particularly export controls, than I ever knew. So, Bill, uh, what do you think the trend is in national security? Well, it's hard to have a debate in the United States about trade without having a debate about national security and, and China. They've all been kind of merged together. But if you think about it, we may be in the stage, you know, to misquote Lenin of two steps forward, one step backward. We may be in, in the, uh, the one step backward stage. I think people have to keep in mind that the enormous expansion of trade is it didn't happen accidentally. It's been enabled by huge reductions in the cost of transportation and communication. So phone calls that used to cost dollars a minute, you know, are now pennies, if not 
three, containerization has enabled huge expansions of ocean shipping. Freight costs are down. None of those two, and digitization is the most obvious. You know, we export a lot of stuff over the internet, IP, technology, things like that. But these are enabling tools that are not going away. They're not going to be uninvented. I think in the last 2000 years, global economic integration has retreated twice, once after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, and once uh, after 1913. And the level of trade in the world in 1913 was not reached again until 1970. But two world wars and a depression, and you can understand why. We're not there now. I mean, the nature of trade is, is changing, and the development of internationally integrated supply chains is kind of a new thing. I mean, when I started doing this, trade was simple. You you made it here and you shipped it there and it was an export or you, you know, made it there and shipped it here and it was an import and that was sort of it. And now everything's made any, everywhere. But that kind of integration is not going to go away. Security is going to encourage companies or maybe force them to make some changes and adjustments, but it's not going to eliminate the basic process. I mean, I when I give lectures on supply chains and I just did one yesterday, Companies have taught over the years to think about best price, best quality, and best delivery. Uh, in other words, all economic criteria. And they've learned, thanks to COVID, thanks to the war in Ukraine, thanks to just looking at desire to be closer to your customer and things like that, and thanks to national security issues, there's actually a fourth factor they need to keep in take into account, and that's resiliency. Resiliency is a fancy word for don't put all your eggs in one basket. And what you're going to see from companies now is not shutting down, not wholesale moving out of particular places, but redistributing their eggs, identifying choke points in their supply chain and developing alternative sources of supply to deal with that. So it's prudential management, if you will. Will that be more expensive than what they're doing now? Yes. And I've had arguments with our administration about that because they spent the first year saying, you know, we can do all this and it won't cost anymore. And I said, that's ridiculous. Of course, it will cost more. Simply changing costs more. You know, you have contractual obligations, you have set patterns of doing things, you have things, you have facilities in place, even though they're just buying facilities in place in particular locations. If you're going to change all that, it costs money. In addition, if you're making anything that is regulated for health, safety, and environmental purposes, you have to get these things certified. That takes time. It costs money to do that. And the result is that your new supply chain configuration that takes national security or just resiliency into account is going to be economically less optimal than the one you've got now, assuming your supply chain managers are any good. But what the administration finally came around to understanding was to admit that, say, of course, it's going to cost more, but there's reasons why it costs more. And there are good reasons. You don't want to run out of stuff unexpectedly in the middle of your production process, which is what happened during COVID. So you need to readjust your thinking in the light of security issues. That doesn't cripple your operation and that doesn't force you back into autarky and staying in one country. It just means you're going to be doing business differently than you've done it before. Yeah, I think it's important to think about technology, which you'd never forget what you've learned, which is one of the wonderful things about about technological progress. There's a ratchet on it. But you also have to think about trust. And many of these diplomatic systems are based on trust. Many business arrangements are based on trust. And if trust fails, you there's not a natural substitute there. And that's as we have the fringes of economic war going on, that once trust is lost, it's very hard to rebuild. So it's a this resilience issue is, is multifaceted, and we're going to have. To, it's going to take companies and and uh, governments time to learn about. 
so so true. We've gone a little bit off the topic of how you explain the benefits of trade to the general person, but I think this topic of national security and, and open markets and the, the clash between the two is going to become more and more prominent. So thank you for those thoughts. We actually do have a, a question from, from Amy. So Amy asks, with the global shift towards trade protection, Australia and New Zealand have a shared challenge trying to convince other countries to embrace open trading systems. We need to tell our story about how open trading systems have benefited us in a way that will resonate. So Amy asks, what are the most effective ways to do this? I think she's talking about other countries. We're still talking to domestic audiences in other countries as well as as part of that. Well, uh, both Australia and New Zealand have made big moves toward open markets and have people who are alive and you can talk to who remember when the markets weren't open. And to my, I don't know your politics well, but my guess is nobody really wants to go backwards. Great bipartisan support, at least in Australia, for open markets, absolutely. That's significant in and of itself. I, that's, a, that's a story that needs to be told. That's a story, okay? The Canada story of the era of NAFTA, uh, which is you had two political parties, one, one anti-trade, one pro-trade, and they partially flipped sides, but both wound up agreeing that integrating with the United States was the right thing to do. And C- Canadians today are open market people. If you're old like Scott and, and I are, you remember that it wasn't always that way in Australia. And you, people can look that's at right. it in context and look at the difference in growth that's ensued in the change of policy. It's a long time ago, and I think it was 1980, I attended a conference in Geneva. It was an UNCTAD conference, actually. And there were people from all over the place there. And there was an Australian there. And a couple other people, of longtime trade veterans who, best thing you could say about them, they were rather acerbic in their comments and they didn't brook a lot of nonsense. And one of the Australians was going on at the time, particularly in a protectionist philosophy. And at one point he said, I don't want to sound like I'm a protectionist or anything. At which point a guy from the UK said, you know, I've never met an Australian that wasn't. But now... Yes, we've come a long way. But the the important thing is not just the transition, but the economic growth that's occurred because of it. And uh, you're a living example of that. Yeah, and the key is, think about what the story is. Tell a story. Mutual friend of ours, uh, a guy named John Weeks, who was NAFTA negotiator for Canada, longtime Canadian diplomat, he retired. John's a great guy. But John always told the story of ice wine in Canada. You have to know that Canada had a small miserable wine industry up around the Great Lakes. I mean, you've seen Canada on a map. It's nowhere near Napa Valley. It is a place where you grow really bad wine and produce it. That's really all, that's all you can do. And so the government's response to the, 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 the wine growers of Canada, the wine producers of Canada, was to enact huge trade protections and make sure they couldn't get their hands on any decent Australian or Napa wine in their, in their regular consumption. And so Canada lived with this teeny wine industry of bad wine for a long, long time. They were forced to open it up during NAFTA. And by being forced to open it up, the people who owned those wines determined that there was a sp- they could specialize, not try to make table wine anymore, but specialize in something called ice wine. Ice wine is, is, is a Canadian geographical indication now that is known worldwide and sells at massive price premiums to anything that the swill that they were producing pre-NAFTA would command even at the local grocery store. And so you have an industry that was forced to change and changed in a way that is not just better immediately, but better and sustainable into the future. 
They are now a specialized industry with a unique product that they sell all over the world. And nobody ever thought the Canadian wine growers were capable of that. But with open markets, you get specialization and you get it. So you have 50 stories. New Zealand has, well, at least 40. You got to keep up. I know New Zealand's a little brother of Australia, but you can get close on this one. Okay. Think of your stories. I'll never forget John Weeks telling the Weiss wine story and just completely ending the debate on whether protectionism made any sense. So you start telling each other your stories. You'll find them. I think it's a constant job, though, isn't it? Having to tell the story because there are these waves of sentiment, this protectionist sentiment that raises its head. And then so it's just this constant responsibility to keep telling the stories and keep talking about the benefits. Yep. The Book of Genesis was an oral tradition for several thousand years. There's a reason. (laughs) So we've got another question from Lachlan. The question is, trade agreements contain a significant amount of industry jargon, which is necessary to achieve real-world commercial transactions. But does the complexity of agreements make it hard to maintain broad public support for trade? It's actually got two questions. I'll ask you that one first. I've often thought that businesses shouldn't never need to read a trade agreement. What they should do is just focus on their what they're selling or purchasing and look at the regulations related, but never, I've always thought the best thing for a business to do is never to have to actually read a trade agreement to find out how it's going to improve their trade. Terms of trade tend to be important to, to business and they'll, they'll evaluate them. In terms of these very complex free trade agreements, which, are, which run hundreds of pages, the public has never really been able to understand why they're 600 pages long. And so if you've got a one-page explanation of why all this stuff is in there and why it's good, that overall you're reducing barriers. You have things called the Annex of Non-Conforming Measures. And you make the observation that that's what people have kept out for now, but anything new that happens in the future, it'll be included automatically. That's called a negative list. But once again, negative list is the jargon. The concept of any new service is already included, is important, beneficial, and easy. The other thing is, and here again, stories will will come into play. When NAFTA reduced tariffs between the U.S. and Mexico, it made almost no difference to my company's business because we've been in Mexico since 1947, something like that, and had had well-established operations. What we massively benefited from was was something we paid no attention to in the negotiations, which was distribution services. And let me put it in, in a story. When uh, NAFTA came into force, there was one Walmart in Mexico. Today, Walmart is the largest employer in the country of Mexico. And what, you, what distribution services freedom did was allowed all those little bodegas to consolidate into hypermarkets or, or superstores, which greatly improved the value to the Mexican customer because they were so much more efficient from a labor standpoint. So the more Walmarts the lower priced Procter & Gamble products were for the average Mexican. Our business grew for something we paid no attention to during the negotiations. The key is you start to work together. And I think uh, I would simply explain a 600-page document by saying, this is a document that, that has rules for how we make things together and how we work together in the future. And the more we make things together and sell them to everybody else, we make them more efficiently. The more we work together, the more problems we solve. There ought to be about enough. I do know when Australia concluded the US FTA, a number of companies increased their exports to the US 
that had received no additional benefits under the FTA at all. It was all the head-turning effect that they thought, oh, let's look at the US as a market. We've got a free trade agreement with them. So even those yep. side benefits can be, can be, yes, make it simple. So I think we're coming to the end of our time. Can I just say thank you so much? I've, I've got your list, Scott, and taken the pearls of wisdom. And I think a CD where I'm going to go from strength to strength and continuing to tell our stories and remind people how important trade and investment is. That's great. Do it with a smile. But also we will absolutely continue listening to your fantastic podcast. Thank you so much. As I said, while you may not have the hair, you are definitely rock stars down here. And um, thank you so much for continuing to, for everything that you really do for bolstering trade and investment and support for what are incredibly important contributions to people's everyday lives. Well, thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.